This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast slash YouTube video we're doing. Um, today we got Bob F., who is someone who's been in GA since I believe 1957, if I'm not mistaken, and as of right now, is, well, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I know you mentioned you're 51 years sober. 1970. Oh, 1970, okay. And that it comes to the 51 years. So how are you doing today, Bob? Oh, doing excellent. Really doing well. It's a beautiful day in Southern Florida. What part of Florida? Uh, right now, Boynton Beach, Boynton Beach, Florida. Okay. So yeah, let's let's dive right into it. So tell me a little bit about your childhood growing up. Did you have both parents? Was there anything you think that might have helped lead to addiction later on in life? Uh, we were a family of four. I did have both parents. Uh, I had I had one brother. Both my older brothers are dead. Okay, one one was a sex addict. Uh, never took care of himself. The other one was a drug addict, imported drugs, a big drug dealer, had his own hashish name. Never took care of himself, and he's dead. My sister is a food addict. She has had the operation on the belly where they do the bypass, where they cut half your stomach out to help her lose weight. And I was a kid who had. 13 years of age, found out what a racetrack was. What a racetrack was. Well, we had both my parents. Uh, my father, he died when I was 19 years of age. And my mother could not handle us. She could not handle us. And the tough story I usually tell is that uh, you know, on her birthday, her birthday was December 29th. He decided died December 29th that night. And I went to the racetrack that night. I was 19 years of age. And I get up, I snuck into the house, and I heard him coughing in the bathroom, probably around 1230. This is when I was living in Brooklyn. And I did not say, Daddy, you okay, or anything like that. I did not say that, because I had to sneak into my room. And about 425 in the morning, I heard my mother screaming, Sid, Sid. And I woke me up. My, my sister was the only one in the house. And my father was having a heart attack. Oh, wow. So I went, yeah, I went, I went into the house. I into the room, the room. I was, he, was, he sleeps in the nude and I'm trying to get him, punch him on his chest, trying to lift his, his legs to get the blood to rush to his head, breathing into his mouth. And I was like taking a, some soda and putting a straw into it and breathing into the straw. He had bubbles because he had bubbles in his lungs. And my father died my arms at 19. That must have been difficult for you. Well, and then the addiction, the addiction came out because he was laying upstairs with a, on the floor with a cover over him. And since I was a young kid, I always... Stole the money out of his pocket. He would put his his pants 
on the doorknob and I would reach in and while he was sleeping, I would take money out. And the day that my father died, as he's laying on the floor with a blanket over him, waiting for that funeral home to pick him up, I went into his pockets. I took out every dollar he had. I remember that night at the funeral, I got buried that afternoon on a Sunday. I said, what do you have to get buried for? The Giants are playing the Bears today in the championship game. That's the day he got buried. It's amazing. Not to interrupt. It's amazing that with our attic brain, those are the things we remember. And those are the things, you know, you look back, it was stealing money from your dead father, just going, and then the the funeral was kind of interrupted by a game. No, that was... I mean, I remember we having dinner that night. And my mother said, it's funny, Sid didn't have any money in his pants. Okay, but Did you admit it? Start- never, never. But along the same lines, I was probably 15, 16. And my, my sister used to have to bank. They used to have a piggy bank made out of chalk. You know, you break it, it breaks it. Not chalk, but I don't know what they call that. That you went to Coney Island. And I used to wait till everyone was asleep. I would take a knife and I would pull out the dollar bills. And then when I was finished with the dollar bills, I started pulling out the half dollars when they were around and the quarters and the nickels and the dimes to rob all the money in my sister's bank. But being a cunning person and a smart person, I put pennies back in the bank because I had to get the weight mm-hmm. to be the same so nobody would know. And one day we used to have a cleaning woman who would come once, twice a week, or once every week, or once every two weeks, and she knocked over the bank. And that pink piggy bank broke, and there was nothing in there but pennies. And my mother did not look at either of my brothers, they did not look at my sister. They looked at me because they know I was the one who stole that money. So this is how it starts young and stuff like that. But it gets worse. It gets worse. You know, I like to say I had the fever. I had the fever. And my mother could not control any of the boys. Couldn't she, she couldn't do it. So she can't control it next year. I went into the army. Oh, what a great move, going to the army. How old were you exactly when you went into the army? Uh, let's see, 1964, I was 20. My father died when I was 19, I was 20. I went into the army and it went crazy. They paid you $78 a month before taxes. So you got $70. I did my training in Fort Dix. And from there, my gambling escalated. I became a thief. I had a deal with the PX. This woman, you know, they, boy, they put the stuff in a big bag and they didn't check like they do now. It's not Costco. And they would just look that you had a receipt. And the cigarettes at that point, caught of cigarettes were $2.10. A cigarette in the army. And I don't smoke. Still don't smoke. Uh, she, I get 20 cartons of cigarettes at a time. She would ring up 10 cents, 10 cents, 10 cents, 10 cents. 20 times she would ring up 10 cents. 
and uh, paid $2 for it to the register, and nobody ever checked it. My wall lockers were full of cigarettes. My foot locker was full of cigarettes. It was called Marlboro Country. And I, had, I took a hundred, I was stationed in Washington, D.C., and I'll get back to that, what I was doing there. And I had 180 cartons of cigarettes loaded up in that car. And what happened? Uh, I saw my friend's father, and both problem gamblers, and he gave me $360. And I put that money in the bank. But that bank was called Aqueduct National, which is a racetrack. And I lost it all. How fast, how fast did you lose yeah. it? How did you make big bets? Did you go incrementally? Well, I bet wherever I had my pocket, wherever I had my pocket. And then I looked to find some more money. I mean, you And so the 360 was gone. My mother lived one block where I dropped it. And her recent widow, one block away. And she says, what do you go there with the car? What are you doing here? I said, I took a drive. I said, I need money for gas. I need money for tolls to get back to the base. And that's what happened. I was stationed. How this happened, I don't know. I was stationed in Washington after basic training in Fort Dix, which I was a basketball player and, and waiting for orders. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to play basketball for the team. I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm six foot two, six foot three. And I was tough. I was stationed at Pentagon, Washington, D.C., working in the message center the office of chief of staff of the army with a very, very high top secret clearance with a lot of endorsements. How I got that, I don't know. I was brought up on bookmaking charges. That's why I go to the racetrack. There are plenty of racetracks in Maryland. I could run off names, but doesn't men Virginia and uh, West Virginia, all these racetracks. And I had a syndicate. And guys would give me money. And I go to in uniform because if you go in uniform, you don't have to pay admission. How great is that? So I'd run, I'd run up and I got dust all over my shoes from the track. And I go in there, rush in there for a couple of races. We went and go in there and they look at me, where'd you come from? But I ran a bookmaking operation. And in the, in the Pentagon, they had a pneumatic tube system. And being a message center, you would put them in a case, a plastic thing, and you put them up like that, and you'll shoot, and it would shoot through the Pentagon. Okay, I know you're talking about, like, kind of like at the bank when you go to the drive-thru, kind of the thing. That's is, it, that's yeah. it. But when I, had to pay, when I had to pay guys money, I would say there's a red tube coming as opposed to a clear glass tube. A red tube is a symbol that a top secret message is coming, gonna be dropped on your side of it. Top secret message. And make sure that the right guy was at the drop where it would drop so he would be able to take out the money. And we want some nice bit of money and the Colonel saw me passing money to somebody and making a lot of noise. And they brought me up on bookmaking charges to court-martial me, but I was smart, so smart. 
And I was living in the barracks then. And all of a sudden, there was a new guy in the barracks. Nobody knew who he was, where he was working, or anything like that. And I knew that it was a plant. That if you would catch us commenting about the gambling or whatever, going to racetrack and the guys together, or playing cards in the barracks, I would be turned in. And for 30, that probably the only, since I'm 13, the only 30 days before Gambles Anonymous that I didn't gamble was because I was risking my life, well, my liberty. I was risking my liberty by not, but I couldn't gamble. So after that, it was full speed ahead. Then we go on a couple of, even further, and then I'm now 25, 26, and I was ready to get married. Did you know at this point that you had a problem, or did you think you're just being a kid doing stupid things? What was no, going through I, your mind? I, I, I knew I, I never used the word compulsive. A lot of in the program, I like to use the word compulsive. I don't like it. I had the fever. I was a problem gambler. I was a problem. I, I'm, this is going to be my living. I would work on a job. I worked two, one year. One year I would work because I knew after one year they owed me two weeks pay and they owed me two weeks vacation pay. Now I have a whole month's worth of money, a whole month, and that money would make me a professional gambler at the racetrack. And then I found a bookmaker. I found a bookmaker who would take my bets. As long as you pay them every week, you take the bets. Basketball. Football, baseball, hockey. Oh, by the way, when my father died, it was a Sunday. And I was 19. And at 6 o'clock, I'm leaving the house. And they said to me, where are you going? This is the night my father is still warm in that grave. Where are you going? I'm going to the hockey game because the Rangers were playing. And I had season tickets. And I always ran the pool. The pool was in the section where we were that everybody put it in a dollar. And I think that 16, 17 players on the team, everybody put in a dollar. And we wrote the names, a piece of paper of the Rangers who were playing that day. And you would pick out of a hat, you would pick out a player. And if your player was the first one to score a goal for the Rangers, you won the kitty. I said, who's going to run it? Who's going to run the pool? Okay. And my two brothers were bigger than I am. They had to restrain, physically restrain me, take my coat off. We're not going anywhere. The night my father died. Scary story. So this is all young. This is teenager, late teenager. Yeah, you said you were around 19 or 20. That's, it's just not to sound repetitive, but addiction makes you do stupid things. And you said you didn't even know you had a problem. So you knew you had a problem. Were you trying to fix it or you just didn't care? I loved it. I loved it. I loved winning a football game. I loved that last second field goal that went through the uprights. I did not like the last second field goal that bounced off the crossbar or up one of the, and bounced out. I did not like that. It's I like having a bad like, high. 
Yeah, I did not like the touchdowns. And all of a sudden, oh, there's a flag holding. Okay. I didn't like it. I had three televisions in the house. I got married. I married a 22-year-old girl. It took us six months to get me into Gamblers Anonymous. She said, where do you want to go on your honeymoon? Any place that there's gambling. So we went to the Bahamas. Any place where there's gambling. That's where I want to go. I convinced her, let me hold the wedding money. Because they're naive and we're very cunning. Let me hold the wedding money. It took me six months to lose all the wedding money, all the engagement money. We lived in an eighty-five dollar this nineteen seventy, so it's not getting it's not the same. We lived in a slum. An eighty-five dollar a month apartment. But for every dollar you paid in rent, you got a cockroach. How wonderful was that? This does not sound yeah. like a wonderful thing. Oh, it gets better. It gets better. That if I mean, we live in the third floor, it's a one-bedroom apartment. We live in the third floor, and it was a building where people would piss in the elevators. And if anyone would uh, come visit me, come visit her, we would. I would have to take a can of Lysol or Glade or whatever it was at that time, and spray the elevator. So they wouldn't be subjected to riding up two flights of stairs in a slum with an elevator that smelled like piss. These are the depths, the depths that this took me to. I remember coming home December 7th, 1970, 51 years ago. And she said to me, we're going to a gambler's anonymous meeting tonight. Now, the usual thing is bullshit. I'm not uh, baloney. I'm not going there. Those guys are sick people. I'm not, I could stop this anytime I want. Okay, I'm not as sick as they are. I don't want to go. Or That's the usual response you're going to get. My response was, okay. Now, she called the hotline. She cried for 20 minutes. And I, I know the guy who's he's a friend of mine. He has 58 years. He has in the the longest of anyone in the world. She cried for 20 minutes to this guy who she doesn't know until she could say, my name is Janet. How painful is that to hear? My name is Janet. And I went in. They ask you 20 questions at 26 years of age. There's nobody 26 years of age back in the day. There were no women in Gambles Anonymous back in the day. There were not. It's like finding a, a pearl in an oyster to find a woman in Gambles Anonymous. But now, through the invention of casinos, we are full of women in the group. But they're not, it's not like a, I don't know, I don't want to get misogyny. I don't want to say it, okay? I don't want to say it. Hmm. But back in the day, they didn't kiss you. They didn't hug you if you relapsed. They didn't say, that's okay, you'll do it better this time. They put you up against the wall. That's what they did. Oh, meanwhile, your wife is crying in the other room. But you don't give a damn about that. 
They put you up against the room, up against the wall. They said, empty your pockets. Empty your pockets. They took all the money out of your pocket. Any credit cards? Now, 1970, um, you guys probably don't even know what Unicard is. Unicard was before MasterCard, Carte Blanche, and all these other things that people had, these cards, before MasterCard, Visa, and all this other stuff. Give me your credit cards. Because credit cards were money. Yep. And then when the wife came out, and she was all, her eyes were all bloodshot from crying what I did to her, they gave her all the money, all my money. That's gambling money. That's holding money. How can you take that from me? I have to pay somebody with that. There's a, a last name with a vowel, so to say. It's like, uh, it's the same exact thing as someone finding your partner's stash of drugs and then giving it to someone else to say no more. It must have been a... I don't know, what you, did you get a lot? For me, I feel like I would get a lot of anxiety if it happened so quickly to me like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I was convinced I'm going to stop because the next day, well, they would all say, kid, you'll never make it. Kid, you'll never make it. Because we didn't have doctors in there. We didn't have lawyers. We didn't have these fancy people. We had people who have to bum a ride, take the subway, take a bus, or walk to a meeting. I go to meetings in Florida. These guys drive up with, with Mercedes. One guy has a Lexus. Not a Lexus. The, what's the one? The Tesla. We're right in the parking lot. And he says to me, watch this. And he got his phone like this. He gets his phone out. And he clicks a couple of things. And all of a sudden, I hear a car start. And the car is coming towards us. That's the car that this guy has. Okay, we didn't have that. I had a hoop. They called the words a hoopty, a hoopty. Oh, yeah, I know hoopties. I've okay. I've been a proud owner of a few hoopties in my life. Okay, a hoopty. That's what it was. And it's terrible. But now they worry about, you know, people in recovery. Now they don't worry, they worry about tea times. So I was ready to stop. So I what was it like? What were, so... Going back just a little bit, what are meetings like? For someone like me, how would you describe it? Because I've done other meetings, but I've never been to a Gambler's Anonymous meeting. Well, you're more than welcome. What they would do, you walk in and you see, well, not as men and women. Uh, back in the day, they were allowed smoking. Yep. And a lot of these guys would have cigars, a lot would have pipes, and a lot of them would have cigarettes. And my wife always knew that I was at a meeting because my eyes were burning and I came out stinking. It was all over my clothes. Now, thank God, they got smart with that. So you walk in and say, hi, what's your name, bro? Say your name. Uh, you have a gambling problem? You feel you have a gambling problem? Yeah. Just sit down and listen. We'll get to you. We will get to you. And they sit you in the chair. You don't know anyone in the room. And if you did, it shouldn't be a bad thing. It should be a good thing. But at that point, you wouldn't understand that. That's a good thing that you have other people that maybe that you know or are recovering from whatever addiction that they have. Community all of a sudden, is very important. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you hear people giving their therapy, and they all say, my name is so-and-so. And they use the term, I'm a compulsive gambler. 
That's a term that they use. And eventually they're going to call you. And there's in the book, the Gambler's Anonymous Handbook has 20 questions. And you're supposed to answer yes to it, either yes or no to at least, well, as many, you know, get as many as you want, as many as you uh, go with what you, your situation. And they ask 20 questions. And then you, and it says the most compulsive gamblers, you used to say it in the top of the book, will answer yes to at least seven of these questions. But now it's on the bottom after the 20th question on the second page. It says most compulsive gamblers answer yes to at least seven of these questions. Uh, number one, they're loaded questions. Okay, you ever lose all your money? Yeah, yeah. You ever lose time for work or school because of gambling? Does it affect your reputation that you often gamble until your last dollar is gone? They're all loaded questions. Okay. And I have one buddy of mine. And then one of the questions is gambling, uh, does it affect your sleeping? Does it you have trouble sleeping? Never does thought of gamble? that. Never thought of that. Right? So it affects your whole life. And what the guy said is I'm in over 40 years and I still have trouble sleeping. So what they did where it used to be on the top of the page before they asked the first question and people would read it. Didn't want to admit that they have, you know, nobody wants to admit that they have a problem. So what they would do, seven, 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 seven. So they would make sure they were under the seven. Okay. So that's why they put it in the last thing they read it here. Then they get you up and they say, well, get up and say, uh, give me your first name. First initial of your last name. And whether or not you feel you are a compulsive gambler. That's how you started. And I'm a pain in the ass and I change it. Okay. I try and change it where in you know, the rooms that I go to, I say, don't ask him that. If the only requirement for membership, like alcohol is to stop drinking and, you know, but the only requirement for membership in gamblers anonymous is a desire. That's the key word. I was Is just thinking design? the same thing. I was about to say, it's not that you are sober, it's you want to get sober. Oh, you got to get up early in the morning, Jim. You got to get up early in the morning. It's a desire to stop gambling. You could be gambling every week, but as long as you have the desire, you're welcome. And I've been talking to these people and say, I have never heard the word compulsive until I joined Gamblers Anonymous in reference gambling. I know what a compulsive shopper is. I think a lot of people do. I have been for a couple of years in another 12-step group called Overeaters Anonymous. And to me, I was a compulsive eater. You know, the food was there. I was going to eat it. So, And my wife, you know, a lot of wives are compulsive shoppers. And I yeah. can be a compulsive shopper. But now we're gambling. Now we're gambling. I never said to anyone, I would never say to you, Jim, I'm a compulsive gambler. Jim, I like to gamble. I have a gambling problem. So when I introduce myself, my name is Bob. And I'm a person in long-time recovery. I like that. That's powerful. For me, that's powerful to say something like that. And, and you know, but then you become a... Three months, you could become a trusted servant and sit in the front of the room. How great is that? 
But when I first came in, see those ashtrays? Go in the kitchen after the meeting and clean them. Because I was the low man on the totem pole. And they used to have breaks. They used to have three-hour meetings. Not these hour meetings. Three-hour meetings with a break. And they would serve coffee and donuts or cake. And if it was an anniversary, they had a big anniversary cake for everybody. But you got to get milk. You got to get sugar. You got to get knives, forks, spoons, all that stuff. And they didn't have a Keurig there. They didn't have a Mr. Proctor Silence. They didn't have a Mr. Coffee. They had these big silver things. Oh, I know. They had one in my... Uh... In my rehab, because they had to make coffee for everybody in the morning. Right. So that How could be you do it? You got to put the whole coffee in there. You got to add a certain amount of water. Starts percolating. And that was the coffee. And then the better part is when the meeting is over, you're low man I'm on the totem pole. You have to clean it. Yep. So you got to get with, You got to deal with the coffee grounds. You got to deal with the, uh, the excess coffee, wash out the pot. It's like I was in the army. Wash out the pot and get her and put it away in a cabinet because we had our own cabinet in the church that we're meeting in and put it there so be ready for next week. That's, I couldn't wait till the next person came in. Then they were low man on the totem pole. I could move up a little bit and not have to do that stuff. But they taught me, if you have that job, it was a way of knowing that you're going to be at the meeting next week. This is true. I, one of the things I do with Addicts Anonymous is once you join the group, if you want to get involved, I immediately try to get people involved. Like, you know, I'll create little jobs for you. Like, I have a social media team. I have a graphic designer. And it just keeps people busy. Like those are their trust. That those is what they're doing to become servants, if that's the word you mm-hmm. want to use. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sure. like I, have, I have someone that's helping me with the videos. That's going to help me produce them and things like that. Beautiful. I mean, you could. A lot of people, you could look at it and say, "Here's an alcohol problem." A lot of people, you could look at, my son included. Here's a drug problem. The gamblers can't tell. I mean, you go to a casino and you, you know, and you look at these guys that are wearing a diaper to go to a casino so they don't have to leave the machine and take and take a crap in their pants or pee in their pants because if they left that machine, the next person in that machine is going to hit the jackpot. Okay? Now, they have something called self-exclusion where you can go into a casino. You could sign papers that you were excluded. Some for all the all the casinos and states that you were excluded from going in. They take your picture. They make you sign a piece of paper. And if you were caught in the casino, they can arrest you for trespassing. And even and a lot of our members have put on this. They go in anyway, but. They, a lot of them put on disguises and put a hat on. Uh, I never on thought of that. <clears throat> I've yeah. heard of the self-exclusion. I never heard it called that, but I have. Uh, it was actually actually a Native American woman on a reservation who she is a gambler, and that's her issue as well. And she told me the same thing. I was kind of shocked that they can arrest you, but that's a good. Well, thing. you sign the trespassing thing. You will be arrested for trespassing, and you agree to it. 
But the Jim, the key here is that if you're lucky, or unlucky enough, you know, to win a jackpot, a couple thousand dollars or more, whatever it is, if you win a jackpot, they don't pay you in quarters anymore. They give you a slip. They give you a slip. And if it's over $600, whatever the threshold is, you have to sign a piece of paper for taxes. But if you are on the exclusion list, you will not get paid. Did you know that one? No, I did not know that one. You will not. You are on an exclusion list, and they check it. And you have to sign, for the tax reasons, you have to sign a piece of paper. And if your name comes up, sorry, they call the security. They escort you out of the casino, and the money that you thought you won, not going to happen. You're not going to get it. But they still go back because they need the action, even knowing that this will happen to them. That's when the disease takes over you. That's when you're in the dream world of a problem gambler. And maybe the fog is not lifted yet. You know, my 51 years of coming to meetings, that's what, and why, why do I still come to meetings? Not because I'm gonna gamble, to mentor people, to give the example, in 51 years, I've never seen someone get a little bit of recovery, whether it be three months, six months, a year, year and a half, leave the room, stop getting complacent, stop coming to meetings. I've never seen that person come into the room, come through those swinging doors and swing both ways. We all know that. And say, hi, fellas, I'm so-and-so. Life is great. I'm gambling. I got all the money in the world. My wife is so happy. She's never been happy in her life. I put my kids to college, all driving new cars. Uh, we're all, they're doing well. They're doing well. My family's together. We go on vacations. And I'm gambling. Everyone is so happy. In 51, they come back with their tails between their legs. And 51 years, no one ever came back and said something like that. So if your brain is working right, you say, well, why would it be different for me? Why? Why? Why would I start, start drinking again? Why would I start using drugs again? Why would I do that? When I hear what's going to happen to me, it's not going to be different for me. It never was different. Can I tell a story about my son? Yeah, absolutely. Tell a story about your son. I would love to hear it. Okay, now this one's a this one's a tough story, and sometimes I get emotional with it. But I should be able to hold it together today. All right, you take your time with it. Take your time with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my son, uh, always a good athlete. Always, you know, just I mean, I coach in little league, coach him in basketball. My daughter too, and she wasn't an athlete. But my son got involved with drugs. Started probably smoking pot at fifteen in high school. And he went to a college in New York called Oneonta. Oneonta. I've heard of that college, yeah. As you know, I'm from New Jersey. I've heard of Oneonta. The nickname for Oneonta is Tonyonta, for obvious reasons. My son became a drug dealer up in Oneonta. And 
and the drug user uh, and a woman chaser. They got one of these renegade fraternities called Sammy were not even allowed on campus because they were renegades. And my son got involved with, and they graduated. They talk about the gateway drug. He went from pot to pills to heroin. How long was, son it? was it quickly or did he do, did he start with one for a while or was he, it a quick? Well, he started with pot and he used to work with me. He used to work with me in the truck. I was a truck driver you know, with a delivery service. And uh, two minutes after the, two minutes after he gets in the car or the truck, he's sleeping, he's dribbling, and he's curled up. And I didn't know anything about heroin. I thought heroin, uh, I didn't know anything about it. And we found out he was a heroin user. It was just just horrible, absolutely horrible. And uh, my wife at the time, actually my ex-wife and I, would go to these family meetings uh, for parents who have children who are involved. And he was continuing to use, and he was assessed. Whether you have a doctor, doctor, we have his counselor, and us and there, and said he has to go away. He has to go away, and he has to go away now. Because he's at risk. I mean, you don't want to hear that. That your son is at risk. Because my son put a gun to his head. He wanted to end it. It just got too much for him. He called for work. You know, he worked with me. I did a moving company. He said, Dad, I, I can't go to work. I don't feel well. Because he was dope sick. And I had to do two moving jobs by myself. Wasn't that happy about it. So when they tell you the place where we're going to send him to a good hospital, and you can't take a half Jewish kid from Long Island. Long Island, it's my accent. The people don't know a New York accent, even though I'm not in New York anymore. It's a great hospital, have a great program. They have great doctors. Uh, and it, it's expensive and they don't take insurance. But funerals are expensive too. And if you have any blood, any warm red blood or blue blood running through your veins, when they tell you that funerals are expensive too, you better wake up. And they said, if you pay it in advance before he goes, you have three days to pay it for a discount for four months. It's $30,000. $30,000 in probably 2008. And this is for rehab. For rehab for four months. That's one of the yeah. things that I, I've, I'm writing a book for our group, and one of the things I was examining is, you know, stuff like that. And one of the things that hold a lot of people back from getting the help they need is who, it's not, most people can't just go, oh yeah, no problem, not an issue. Like me personally, that was not an option. But I had a DUI when I was 27. The only good thing that ever came of it is there was a program in New Jersey that if you've had a DUI or anything like that in the past, they will pay for your rehab. So my $30,000 or whatever the hell they charge, because it is a lot, you know how it is to live in Jersey and New York, 
um, mm -hmm. it was paid by the state. That's terrific. I think every state should have that. Yeah, I got lucky. I got, because I couldn't do it alone. I was on booze and pills, um, specifically also clonopin. So clonopin and alcohol are two of the things you can actually die from withdrawal. Mm -hmm. I remember him sitting in there when he was assessed. You know the look when they had the hood over their head? The oh, hoodie, yeah. oh, yeah. The hood over their head? That was the look like, I don't want to be here, okay? I'm not listening. Finally, he said he would go. He would go. He would go to Mississippi the next morning. And we, I was not married to his mother at the time. Still not married to her, but uh, they get in the car to go home. He says, Mom, you have to take me to my dealer. <clears throat> and she's looking to your dealer for what? He said, if you want me to go, if you want me to go, I have to buy some heroin. And she gave him the money because he was broke. She gave him the money to buy the heroin. Because I guess you know, he had to take two planes from LaGuardia, one to North Carolina and one to Mississippi. And the last thing they want to do is to go through with withdrawals on the plane. That is the last thing they want to do. And she took him, she took him to get more heroin. But it didn't matter. You had to get him on that plane. You had to get him on that plane. And then they switch planes. I hope they make the switch. And they put him on a little commuter plane and they pick him up with the druggy buggy. I like to call it the druggy buggy. <laughs> I never heard that, the druggy buggy. You never heard that either? No. That these guys come, and I guess they're workers or ex-people ex who had an addiction. I don't like to wear that. And, they pick him. and here's a kid, a young 28-year-old kid coming in with a, with a suitcase, or 26, or everywhere, coming in with a suitcase, a little suitcase. How do they know it's him? How do they know? They know. They know. So when I try and get the message to the other group and the people in Gamblers Anonymous, I would say, I was in 37, 38 years when this happened. But I had recovery and an absence. And I would say, how many of you people here sitting in this room or on the Zoom room, whatever, if you had a chance, if you were still gambling and you had a chance to save your child's life by coming up with $30,000 for three days and you're still gambling, how many of you could do it? And if you're one of the ones who could do it, Right after I finished speaking, you put up your hand and you share that you could do it. To this day, no one ever put up their hand and shared that they could do it. So why do I keep doing what I do in the program, the bracelets and everything, and the mentoring people and sponsoring people and stuff? Because not only did the program save my life, but it saved my son's life because I, because he would be dead. And this addict's anonymous. I'm speaking as a parent now. You know, I could be on both sides of the fence as a pro someone had a problem and someone whose child had a problem. So I could be on both sides of the fence. And sometimes I've been on the fence and that fence had spikes and those spikes up your ass don't feel very 
good. And I've been on both sides of it. So I know what it's like. And for the people out there having a problem, no parent, and again, I'm speaking as a parent now, no parent would ever want to receive that phone call. That is the worst thing that you could ever do to your parents, that they would get that phone call. That Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, I'm sorry to tell you, his son overdosed and we couldn't save him. That is the horror that when they're in active, people are in active addiction that we live with every single day. And it's not fun. Not fun at all. I've, I've done a lot of interviews and I do, a lot of people reach out to me for other stuff. And I've met, I think so far, <clears throat> two mothers that had a Narcan, their son, that they found him dead. One girl, she, the mother was sleeping and the, thank God the kid's girlfriend was there. She couldn't get him up, so she ran to the mother. This is how bad it was. The mother had Narcan on the side of her bed. That's how ready she was. She got up, she grabbed it, and she Narcaned him. And they, they brought him back to life, thank God. But there's too many stories sure. of the ones, like you said, that don't come back, and you got to make that call to a parent. You know, the police. And the sad part is, three days later, same thing. Overdose. I've been to many funerals. I see a 22, 24, 26 year old child, whether boy or girl, open casket. And it's like looking at an angel. And there's all their school friends and pass by and crying and stuff like that. And I always say, let their death, let their deaths not be in vain. And they don't think it could happen to them, it could happen to them. But now we're talking about gambling. Yeah. I just want a, a little a little side note that I know what's going on. Believe me, I know. My brother, my brother killed himself. Okay, he killed himself. It's not a good thing. Not at all. And he was a big heroin guy. Well, he was imported hashish, and he killed himself. But that's sorry to hear that. Yeah, but this is what what happens. Okay, this is what happens. And not good, not good, but it's there for the grace of God go I. I'm not a God person, I'm a spiritual person. Like, oh God, because of God, I'm not a God person. I don't want to go into, into that tangent, but it's like, oh God, I couldn't do this without God and all this stuff. I believe maybe in the high power, but not God. What was God for the other 20 years? I was gambling, where was he? All of a sudden he, he, he showed up and he said, okay, you're not gonna gamble anymore? doesn't work like that okay he's not the little guy up there but there's 50 billion people in this country in this world and he's not the little guy up there is watching over me am i going to bet on the football game today it's not happening it's not happening the only thing to save me is i went into a program i went into you know addiction is the only war that you have to surrender to to win what a great statement that is I have to, I surrender to this, right? Well, it's like defeat. I came up with a saying that we all must come to the admission of defeat before we can defeat anything ourselves. Well, there it is. It's it, when they're ready to hear it, when they're ready to hear the message, they'll be ready to stop. And some people, it goes in this year, it goes in this year. Take the cotton, I mean, what do they say? Take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. 
That's what they tell you to do. Great saying. Never Listen. heard that one. You never heard that one? Take, Take the, the cotton, cotton out, out of your, your ear and put it in your mouth? Put it in your mouth. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. Yeah. Listen listen twice as much. So but I had a I had to give service. I had to give service. I couldn't just I mean I paid for my seat, as many people have. I paid for my seat in that room. I had to give service. And I did. I did. That was the next thing I was going to say. I mean, because it has to tie in, it ties into service. So you are a real long term sobriety guy. Like, probably out of your category, you're one of the top guys in the country for as long as you're the length of your sobriety. Well, Tell us about that. Well, when I was chairman of the New York Intergroup, that was for four years. It was the biggest intergroup in the world. I did that for four years. And one year as assistant chairman before that. And uh, there are 50 people have 51 years of abstinence. Okay. There are in the whole world, 51 years in the whole world. Right now I'm number 14. And one guy I just found out has brain cancer, which is a terrible, he has like 56 years. I'm number 14 in the whole world. But this is not an ego thing. I still get up the same way anybody else gets up. I still go to the bathroom anybody uh, as anybody else goes, does. Um, I'm a regular guy. I don't let that get to me. Two months ago, I had a hip replacement. At 77, I had In March, I had something called a pulmonary embolisms, which are blood clots in your lungs. And I almost died. That's very dangerous. I've heard of that. And they're in the hospital for a few days. They give you something called heparin, which is a blood thinner. That was in March. In August, they came back. I was in the hospital again. I'm on somewhere, a little pill over here called Eloquist. Eloquist is a blood thinner. I'm on that for the rest of my life, two times a, two times a day. And November 9th, I had my hip replaced because my hip failed. And you don't know what pain is till you feel this thing. I had to go, I could, I could say to now, I'll give the shortened version. Because I had to wait like five, six weeks till I get an appointment with the surgeon to, you know, for the operation to get to the hospital. And I was on oxys, oxy tens. I'm sure people, it's that oxy, uh, that's something you put in your, in your washing machine. But I think people know what I'm talking about when Oxycontin. they say oxy ten. Yeah, they know. I have never taken a pain pill in my life. I've never been under the knife in my life. And I know there were 10 milligrams. I had to get, deal with this pain. And I figured, okay, I'm going to break them in half. I'm going to take five, five milligrams three times a day. And everyone's saying, you're going to become addicted. You're going to become addicted to these pills. And I said, look, I, without these pills, I couldn't make it for five, six weeks. I am taking them as prescribed. Because they're time-release pills. I am not crushing them and snorting them. 
And when the operation, I took it a few, maybe a week after the operation, because the pain was really great. I've not used them since. They're locked away in the drawer over here. Don't use them. So maybe I have, I know what this stuff could do to you, so I don't do it. But well, I believe be anything that's taken, anything that's taken prescribed, and you're doing, you're honestly, you know if you're lying. The only person that truly knows if you're lying about are you abusing them is yourself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, well, my girlfriend is, uh, she's like Nurse Ratchet. When one flew over the cuckoo's nest, whoever saw that movie. Yeah, Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson, she was the nurse and she was a bitch. She was a biatch. And how, how she treated these guys and stuff. But she took care of me. She's going to have her knee replaced in April. And I'm going to take care of her the same way she took care of me. So I'm looking forward to that. But I've been married, you know, I've been married, personal thing, I've been married three times. I have been divorced three times. Three times. Was that due to your, was it due to your addiction? No. Nope. Well, the first one I did damage. I took out of a beautiful home, you know, and, and I put her into the slum apartment and I buried all the money and stuff like that. And the second one I have two wonderful children with. Okay, my son is my qualifier in the other group. I don't call my addict. I don't like that word addict. I really don't like it. Because, well, in reference to my son, he was my son before he used drugs. He was my son while he was using drugs. And he's my son after he stopped using drugs. Yeah, I've had a lot of people mention that too, because obviously the name of our group is Addicts Anonymous. But I read this great saying where someone said we need to actually just redefine the word we need to make it where it doesn't have the problem is is it's one of the first words they use so it comes with a stigma like the second if you say oh i'm an addict it makes you sound like there's now something wrong with you versus if you say to someone i have like a substance use disorder Mm -hmm. and that's how i handle it you know because that's you know as a as a he'll be 40 years old next next april he's getting married in may He's getting married in May. There's a nice, he just bought a house for $411,000. I don't know if that's big money now or not big money, but there was big money when I was around. I never bought a house for $411,000. And I never see on the other program I belong to Naranon, as people know, which is the sister group, like Alanon's a sister group or Addicts Anon, whatever. You know, it's a sister group. Of, and I never say, and a lot of women do, I sit in a room with 40 people. 39 of my women. I'm the only guy there. Mm. But that's, that's another story for another time. And I never say, my addict. My addict. Like, it's not my TV. It's not my stereo. It's not my kitchen. It's not my bedroom. It's not a possession. He's my son. And he qualifies me to be here in these rooms. And I like to say he's my son. My son is the reason why I'm here. And a lot of and a lot of times I'll tell them, you know, why do you keep coming to meetings? Why do you keep coming? Don't you have anything better to do? Yeah, I got things better to do. I'm captain of the tennis team. I went down. I'm going to be playing a little bit tomorrow. I'm not ready to play yet. Why do you keep coming? Because of everyone in AA who did two years and just disappeared, 
you walked in there, what the hell am I doing here? The people are drinking, the people are in here two years, nobody has any long-term time recovery. And I like to say that to the rooms, addiction brought me to the rooms. But life, life keeps me in these rooms. Makes It makes sense to me. Life keeps me here. That's why you have 12 steps of recovery. Because it teaches you how to talk to people. It teaches you how to react to people. It teaches you to be a better person. It teaches you to be powerless. It te- teaches you to give back, make amends, make amends. And my favorite step is step 12. Yep. And in the, GA, in the GA program, it says after having made an effort to practice all these principles in your daily affairs, you try to carry the message to other compulsive gamblers. And that's what you do by doing things like this and setting the, the example that it can be done. That's why I go to means I'm not gambling tomorrow. I'm Bracer Bob. Can I tell the story about Bracer Bob? No. Can I? Can I? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm listening. I love listening okay. to stories. I'm, I'm known uh, in the other program, a bunch of other programs, Bracer Bob. They, I'm oh. also the Bob Father. I got a bit, they, they call me the Bob Father. The Bob Father. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah I got actually a picture. The Bob Father. I started probably four years ago. I had an idea. Yeah, I'm having a bracelet that says one day at a time. One day at a time. This is how this program works. This is how any 12-step program works. You're not going to get a year after your first week. You accumulate the days, the weeks, the months, and the years, and you don't stop. So one day at a time bracelets. The blue blade bracelets. And just, you guys all know what the bracelets are. I've given out, probably sent out around the world, probably 4,000 bracelets. I buy 1,300 at a time, probably it's more than 4,000. And they're given out for free. Anybody wants them, they're given out for free. I got, I got groups that buy them, that buy them. They had 20 guys in my group. We want, to, we want to show unity. And how you show unity is everyone is wearing for the meat wearing a bracelet that says one day at a time and we have some called trustees and i guess all groups have trustees all the big bigger groups have trustees they didn't like it they did not like it because those morons thought that a bracelet is to be treated like a piece of literature and has to be approved i said a bracelet is a bracelet it's not a piece of literature and it took me three years of fighting to get these approved. That is approved, appropriate. In some of the rooms, they have signs in the front of the room, one day at a time, whether it's see here, when you leave here, let it stay here, easy does it, all these things. Yep. They, they had these pieces of paper that you put in front of the room. It'd be okay to give those out, to give those out for the new person, but not to brace them. I said, it says the same thing. It's the same thing. What's the problem? So we had agreed that we wouldn't, we would give it out before the meeting started 
or after the meeting closed with the serenity prayer. And I didn't like it, but that's another story. We got it approved as appropriate literature and give them out to anybody. So that was idea number one that Bracer Bob had. Now I have another idea. When someone accomplishes abstinence for at least one year and goes to meetings, you have to go to meetings. And if you are have not done whatever addiction you're doing for one year, have a bracelet that says, I am a miracle. I am a miracle. And they wear that. And I got people call me. I got a woman, woman called me from Alaska today hmm. to send her an I am a miracle bracelet. January 2nd was a one-year anniversary. And it, and it took them more than one year to make it. So I will mail it out tomorrow. And it's a great reminder. That's why on the bracelets I give out, I just put, you can do this. Because just in case you're ever in a moment of desperation, you can kind of look at Mm -hmm. that and say to yourself, I could do this, get yourself through it. And now I I have a new one, which I came up with about two, three months ago. I ordered 200, and I probably have about 40 left. And the the color for addiction for the bracelets is purple. That's a color again. This bracelet has the most powerful statement. It says, I am done. That's a good one. I I am done. And the people with the drugs, the I am done is for the spouses of the people using drugs. They're done with the bullshit. They're done with the lies. They're done with it. what these people, the sexual abuse, the verbal abuse, the physical abuse that these addicts are doing for them. So they could wear it. And the people who are using these substances, when they have their recovery and they don't want to use it anymore, they have a brace that says, I am done. And I also have one. Can I say the F word? You could drop an F bomb, absolutely. Okay. I have two bracelets. One says, the capital, black bracelet with white lettering. It says, fuck meth. And I have another bracelet that says, fuck heroin. Those are the two big things and, in the country. Matt, and, yeah, I got, and I got people calling me up. Could you make one F fentanyl? So I said, look, I can't do everything. They want, they want cocaine. They want this. It cost me money. Okay? Yep. I can't do, do all that stuff. And if people, they wear them. Even if you don't wear them, even if you put the one day at a time on your nightstand, you want to keep your anonymity. Anonymity. I've been to so many restaurants, and I see a woman serving me, and she got spikes all over her face, she got tattoos all over her arms, and I say to her, "Are you in a program? Are you in a twelve-step program?" And she said, "Yes." Then she said, "The dumb thing. How do you know?" Well, I think we know how we know. And I say, "Would you like this bracelet?" And I take the bracelet right off my, right off my arm. Right off my wrist, would you like this? It says one day at a time. And they say, oh, I don't want to take your bracelet. I said, that's okay. I have plenty more. And they put it on. You know what they do? They give me a hug. They give me a hug because someone cares and someone recognizes it and give them the hope that they could do it. Absolutely. And this, this is what my... 
this is what my life is about. Okay, my life is about helping people. This is my life about carrying a message of hope to people. Not by words, by example. Yeah, I was going to show you something pretty cool. If you look, we got our own uh, sobriety check also. And it says uh-huh. the same thing. If you these are pretty cool, also because the one thing I learned kidding around, I say is addicts love their chips. They love collecting those things. You know. And you know why I could never do that? I could never use that. Because you're a gambler. It looks too much like a poker chip. Yep. Because you get them from the, I get them from the same company that also does poker chips. Right. That that's where my idea came from for the bracelets. Is I mentioned that woman who is a Native American gambler on the reservation. She said keychains but when i looked it up the keychains were kind of expensive so i went with bracelets mm-hmm. but I, well i'm going to tell you what they really get you get them a lot cheaper yeah we'll talk that's about that after oh for sure but that's my life i mean i've been in a relationship with this woman now over five years five years it's a long time she knows nothing well she knows nothing about it. i would always tell the people in the program that the young guys, also young guys who have young children in the program and they're either addicted to drugs or addicted to gambling. And the message I have for them, my kids never saw me. I've been in the program a lot. My kid, one's 39, one's 33, my daughter's 33. They never saw their father as a problem gambler. Okay. And I say to these young guys, and this is, not as a member, this is like a, like a grandpa, like a father. I said, do you know something? See that little baby? How high, how much you have to win to lose that? Because you're going to lose it. And I said, I mean, you have something that not many people have. Those young children do not ever have to know you as a problem gambler or someone using drugs. How high do you have to get to give that up? How much money do you have to try to win to give that up? Daddy, let's have a catch. Daddy, let's go to the park. Daddy, could you coach my Little League team? Get away from me, I don't have time. Get away from the television set. Mommy, where's daddy? Where's daddy, mommy? No, no, it's not worth it. Trust me, it's not worth it. You got to say like what your bracelets say. You need to say, I am done. I am done. I am done. I am done paying bookmakers. I am done paying shamans. I am done paying banks. I am done paying finance companies. I am done paying relatives. I am done paying back money that I stole. Okay, I am done. I am done. I see it. I have a disease. I have a disease, disease of addiction. If I had cancer, what is the doctor going to tell me? The doctor's going to tell me you have to go for treatment. The treatment is chemotherapy. The treatment is radiation. The treatment is coming in every six months and getting the PET scans and getting well and changing your diet. That's what the doctor's going to tell me if you want to live. I'm not going to fight him. If I have diabetes, guess what? That's, that's a disease too. They I might take pick, insulin, but we got to go to our meetings. I, I got to pick my finger. I got to pick my finger. I got to watch my sugar. I got to do, maybe take pills, whatever I have to do. It's, in, it's a disease. Well, guess what? Addiction is a disease too. And the most 
the best treatment for addiction is to go to meetings and do not feed into your addiction. Stop whatever you're doing and you will recover. So if you have cancer, you're not going to tell the doctor, well, I'm not going to go for it. I'm just going to die and insulin. I'll just eat, go out to eat all the ice cream I want. I love hagen I'll eat all the shit I want and I'll eat all the candy I want and everything like that. And I'm be 500 pounds to start amputating parts of my body because I don't want to go for treatment. Well, if you say you don't want to go to meetings, you have an addiction, you're saying the same thing. The same thing. I'd rather die and destroy my family along with it. So I don't, see, I don't play games with this program. I really don't. Of all the addictions, all of them, the one that has the most suicides is gamblers. No suicide, problem gambling. You, you can look at an alcoholic, most of them, you get, oh, this guy's drinking, 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 whether he's functional, he's not functional, he's a drop-down drunk, okay? Or you can look at someone messed up with the drugs, and you know, this guy's effed up and stuff like that. A gambler, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell, unless you go to a casino and you see these people sitting there. It's hard to tell. Yeah. So, I'm Bob. I'm Bob, a person in long time recovery who is never who is not any better than anyone else that's who i am that's what i am that's great i really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today the well, last question i'm gonna have been, been my pleasure yeah really super cool man and um my last question is, I know you've given a lot of advice, but is there anything else you want to give to, any advice you want to give to any type of person that's, you know, in recovery right now? Any message you want to get across? Don't fight it. And how we close the meetings after the serenity prayer is keep coming back because it works if you work it. So work it, you're worth it, and don't alone pick up the phone how great is that that's great advice couldn't say it any better than myself i'm going to say it again it works if you work it so work it you're worth it and and don't be alone pick up the phone i just fight forth with somebody on that one i just try and fight with these people i said don't call me after you go back to gambling don't call me after, because after I cannot do anything. Call me before you gamble, or you have an urge, or you have a bad thought, or whatever, you're having a heart. Call me before. I will pick up the phone. But now with the Zoom and everyone's all over the world, it's not like a local meeting where one of your buddies from the phone list calls you up and says, come on, let's meet for coffee. And you sit down to 2 in the morning in the diner in New Jersey, and you have coffee with someone, and you calm them the F down. Mm-hmm. That's how it works, okay? But if you don't use the tools of the program, and you don't read the literature, you don't try. I don't believe in writing the steps. I'm not a write-the-step scout. I believe in living the steps, okay? I believe in living the steps to the best of your ability. And if you don't use the tools in your program, in your toolbox, you go into the room, we can give you a toolbox, the literature, sponsorship, the steps, meetings, service, you're all part of the toolbox. Use them. Because if you see somebody brings out a brand new tool, 
it's bright and shiny like you get at Home Depot. It's bright and shiny. It means you haven't used it. Yeah. That's that good. Mm-hmm. That's that good. So, got to go to meetings. If you don't go to meetings, you do it right. Look at Zoom meetings. I can go on meetings every single day, every hour of the day. Yep, you'll, I don't you have could to, always find one. I don't have to worry about it. Well, thank I you so much for coming yeah. on. I want to just appreciate it for everyone that's watching or listening. Um, for YouTube, definitely get subscribe to us. Give us a like. Um, we're also available on the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor, Breaker. So there's a bunch of platforms. Check us out there. And if you go on iTunes, give us a like there as well. Um, I just wanted to say one last time, thank you to Bob F. And until next time, we will see you then.